Let's go before the Lord in prayer, shall we? Let's pray. <clears throat> Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we do come before you this morning, dear God. And we want to praise you and thank you for the God that you are and the God that you have always been to us. You have been a good and gracious God, a loving, compassionate God. Not only this, but a holy God, righteous and just. We're so thankful, Father, for, your, for these attributes that you have conveyed through your Son very clearly to us. Uh, we're so thankful for the example that he is to us. We thank you, dear God, uh, that you have given us your word. And we pray that you would learn from the things, uh, Lord, that you have conveyed very clearly in the scriptures. I pray for anybody, Father, in this room that has profess Christ but never been born again, never been saved or changed by your spirit. I pray for them. I pray for those that perhaps are not sure if they're saved. And I pray for those that are, Lord God, that you'd continue to build them up in the faith. I pray that you'd help me, dear God, to convey your word very simply and uh, plainly and strengthen my heart, dear God, uh, to do those things that you have called me to do, to be faithful behind this pulpit, to be true, not handle the word of God deceitfully, but Lord, truthfully, with all sincerity. We love you. We know we are loved by you. There's no doubt about that, dear God. You have demonstrated it very clearly. And we want to praise you for, for that also. For your a God that is not all talk. Uh, you don't just say that you love us, but you show that you do love us. And we appreciate you for that. Bless your word to our hearts this morning. Uh, remove, Father, any distractions from this place, from our hearts and minds. But the word of God will have preeminence. And I pray, Father, that you be with those that couldn't be with us today. Father, some are sick, some are away. I pray that you will continue to have your hand of mercy upon them. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 15 in your Bibles, please, verses 1 and 2. Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners, for to hear him, indicating our Lord Jesus Christ, and the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. And notice he spoke a parable. In this chapter of Luke 15, we see three parables that are given, that are related to each other, conveying one central truth, and the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. These all three parables in this chapter are purposely designed to convey the truth about how God feels regarding one sinner that is found and repents and turns to God. The parables given were a response to the Pharisees' attitude and accusing demeanor when Jesus ate with sinners. Verse 2, and the Pharisees and scribes, notice that word there, murmured, saying, this man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. Now, the main problem regarding these religious rulers were the fact that they didn't really understand the purpose and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. They didn't understand the heart of God towards sinners. A similar thing happened when Jesus meets uh, Zacchaeus and, and Zacchaeus receives the Lord joyfully and the, and the Lord receives him and uh, asks him that today he's going to be at, at his house 
And in verse 7 of Luke 19, when they saw it, they all murmured, saying that he was gone to be a guest with a man that is a sinner. Jesus shares uh, with the murmurers and those that are listening his main mission. As a matter of fact, Luke 19 verse 10 was born the mission statement by our Lord Jesus Christ, again confronting the fact uh, that these uh, people misjudged the Lord. He says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is what? Lost. This is the whole purpose of Jesus' coming. This is the whole purpose of why God sent his Son in the world for sinners, for lost sinners, for those uh, that have been simply defiled by their own hearts that, are, that is absolutely wretched and wicked before God, are deceitful, desperately wicked before God, as Jeremiah declares it. And the scribes and Pharisees had no problem with recognizing that. As a matter of fact, in others, they had no problem recognizing publicans and sinners that were lost. But more than that, they would view them as a lost cause not just lost. Why? Because they had no intention of reaching them. What the scribes and Pharisees didn't understand was the fact that they were too lost, blind and wretched sinners. So the accusation against Christ gives us a little insight of the compassionate God that we have. Uh, there are two things in verse 2. The Pharisees and scribes murmured saying, first of all, this man receiveth sinners. And this reveals the favor of God upon sinful people. This is the grace of God. The grace of God that appeareth unto all men. The grace of God that is no doubt an attribute of his love that has appeared to sinners. That God would uh, receive these sinners. Remember when Simon the Pharisee uh, was uh, visited by Jesus. Remember that? And Jesus, he had him over to his place. And he saw that this sinful woman was allowed to touch Jesus Christ. Uh, Simon concluded that because of this, that Jesus couldn't be a holy man of God or a prophet, uh, he said this within himself. He said, this man, in Luke 7 verse 35, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him. For she is a what? She, for she is a sinner. Now let's just stop and think about that for a moment. God manifested in the flesh, coming to seek those that are sinful, allow him or them to approach him, to touch him. And this is a beautiful thing, but this is the murmuring that the Pharisees had, the Simon the Pharisee had. And, uh, and number two, this also reveals not only the favor of God upon us, but also the fellowship that God wants to have with us. The Bible says that he ate with sinners. He, ate, he sat down with sinful people. Now, God desires to have a relationship with all men. And, uh, and this is the whole purpose of his coming, again, to bridge, if you will, the gap uh, that was broken because of rebellion. Psalmist said this, For when I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, uh, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that are mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visits him? Now, even the psalmist was blown away at the fact that there's a God that wants to be, uh, you know, mindful of us and have something to do with us and visit us. What we have to understand and be very careful of is that this doesn't mean that Jesus accepted their sin. 
he didn't, he re, he didn't uh, uh, simply uh, was in favor of their sinful actions. Of course not. Uh, we must not misunderstand that. You know how God feels about sin. I mean, the Proverbs declare it very clearly in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16. There are six things that God or uh, the Lord hates. The Lord, the, uh, seven are an abomination unto him. The first one is a proud look. Second one is a lying tongue. Third one is hands that shed innocent blood. Uh, verse 18, a heart that deviseth wicked imagination and feet be swift to running to mischief and a false witness that speaketh lies and he that soweth discord among the what? Brethren. And so there are things that God absolutely abhors and hates. Our sinful society and culture is forever trying to get God and those that follow him to accept them under the banner of love. In other words, accept their sinful uh, actions or upbringing. Many people today have a false impression about God and his love for humanity. Some people think that if God truly loved them, he would tolerate their sinful style or meet their expectation and fulfill their own personal uh, desires. Well, that's wrong. Did you know that God doesn't owe us anything? You know, God's love for us is not based upon what we think, you know, uh, uh, that God should give us. God doesn't owe us anything. And so in the very beginning, Satan deceived Eve to, to, to make her, I believe, think that God didn't love her and that he was holding back from her by not allowing her to eat from that tree in the middle of the garden. In Genesis 3.1, And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. Look at this. For God doth know, God knows, that in the day you eat thereof, your eyes shall be opened, you shall be as God, knowing good from evil. God knows that. It's almost like he's almost... Uh, you know, conveying the fact that God is holding back. God doesn't want you to simply have that tree because you'd become a God and you'd know the difference between good and evil. However, the opposite is true. God did show love to Eve by giving her a variety of things or, or, or trees to eat from and warning her about the tree that absolutely would destroy her and cause death to come upon her. So it was on the contrary, God did love her, gave her other things to eat from and warned her against the one that would absolutely crush her. Genesis 2.16, in the Lord, God commanded the man saying of every tree of the garden, thou mayest, what's that word there? Freely eat, freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Uh, we must understand that God is our creator. He created all things and he even created us to be dependent upon him and his word. He is God. God desired us to be part of his plan, purpose, and desires a relationship, intimate relationship with us. This is a great love within itself that God will walk with man. Desiring more out of life without God in the picture is both wicked and sinful. And so, along with God's amazing design and creation comes His power, authority, and leadership. Listen, He is God. The psalmist said it very clear. He says, Know ye not that the Lord, He is God? It is He that hath made us, and we not ourselves. He is God. It's amazing how people want the forbidden things. When there's, don't touch, why? I want it. 
I mean, think about it. There are so many fruits in the world that we haven't even tasted. I don't see anybody running and desiring those things. And have you ever, I'm, I'm telling you, there are some fruits till now I've never seen in my life and I only just heard. And I wonder how that tastes like. It's not forbidden. But it's those forbidden things that the flesh and the human nature uh, wants to go against. What do you mean I can't have that? What do you mean uh, I can't be like this or go there or watch this? It's, it's, it's the sinful nature of man want, that wants to buck and kick against God. Some people also falsely believe that if God truly loved them, he would not allow wars and death and, uh, and, 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 and famine and uh, innocent people and children suffer and hurt. He wouldn't allow health problems and, and divorce uh, to happen. However, let me just say, God in this area is blameless. You say, why? It's because it is things like this that we see that take place are a result of the sinful uh, nature. It is the result of the sin and the pride of, heart, of the heart of man. It, it is the result of the free will of man. Mark 7 verse 21 says, From within... Out of the heart of men perceive evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, and what's that word there? Foolishness. And yeah, there are some innocent people. That's why God hates people shedding blood of innocent people. He hates that. And by the way, God will balance the books. I mean, God is going to... Uh, but what, what people want from God is to step in now. But he will step in in his time. Why? Because he's God. And until people learn that and understand that, they would never appreciate the plan and purposes of God, which they completely don't perhaps understand. But we know that God is good. We know God is just. We know God is loving, kind, and righteous. And shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And he will in his time. God created everything perfect in the beginning. Without sin, without death, it was the disobedience of one man that cursed the world. And the Bible says in Romans 5.12, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for all have what? Sin. And this verse is absolutely... Uh, abused not this verse that we just read but the verse of Luke chapter 15 verse 2 that Jesus ate with sinners and he received with sinners is abused to justify the carnal fellowship with unrepentant sinners uh, there are prefacing believers today who engage with sin sinful activity in others and they use this passage as a proof text didn't Jesus eat with sinners so we can't misunderstand what the passage is on about here. We're going to unfold this uh, very clearly so people understand that Jesus did not eat or receive, uh, eat with sinners or receive sinners to sin with them. He wasn't there to laugh at their jokes. He wasn't there to get drunk with them. He wasn't there to you know, come together and, and plan with the tax collectors of how to defraud people. He wasn't there to do that. But there are people today that try to, you know, use this verse to say, hey, look, see, we, I mean, how else are we going to reach the sinners, right? We have to be like them to reach them. We have to make them feel like we're not what? 
judging them. We have to make them think that we accept them. And this is the slogan of churches today. But it gives a false conception. Come as you are, stay as you are. No, listen, what we have to understand is that yet God receives sinners in this sense that he will receive those people that come to hear the word of God. That's what they did. Publicans and sinners came and sat to hear him. They wanted to hear him. They wanted to hear what Jesus had to say. And yes, his audience were sinners. By the way, there isn't a righteous person in the world today. So we're all candidates of God's grace. And to use this verse to justify the fact that we can go and live loosely in sin with others and go in the pub and have a beer with others just to show them that we love them and we tolerate them is wrong. It's wrong. Well, according to the Bible, it's wrong. Proverbs 17, 15, He that justifieth the wicked and he that condemneth the just, even they both are an abomination to the Lord. Ephesians 5, verse 11, And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather what? Reprove them. You know what the common you know, social status of Christianity today? Oh, we want to reach this person. So we want to show them just how much we love them in their sin. And so we continue to spend time, even laugh at their jokes. We allow them to simply uh, influence us, rather we influence them for good, to turn to Christ. We make them think that their gossip and their, and their, their you know, conversation is, is justified. No. We can never leave the impression with others that we're trying to reach that what they do and how they live toward God is right. Well, that's our common Christian uh, social evangelistic approaches today. That's what it is. I had a man that I was speaking to yesterday. As a matter of fact, uh, William uh, sent a message out saying pray for him. He had met a man that I was trying to reach over uh, a course of some weeks or months. And I won't mention his name, but he said, oh, I've just bumped into so-and-so, and, -so, and he, believed God, he believes that God is after him. And so, sure enough, I got on the phone, and I called him. Missed the call, called me back, and we started talking about when we're going to meet up, and, uh, and so forth. And he said very clearly that he wasn't ready. But he still wanted to be my friend. He said, I'm not ready. I know it, he, he, he believes somewhat, it's true, but he's just not ready. And he says, besides, I know God accepts me. I know God you know, loves me and he accepts me. And I know I love him. I said, well, hang on a moment. I said, are you living in sin? Are you living in fornication? Are you uh, drinking? And he says, yeah. I said, well, God, listen, doesn't accept your lifestyle in that area. God receives us sinners who, and we're going to get there, who repent. That's the whole context of the passage. He's receiving people that hear his word, that turn from their wicked ways and receive the truth to be saved. That's who he accepts. We think, oh, God accepts people in their sin and therefore he's going to love them in their sin. No, you read the Psalms. God doesn't accept people in their sin. And this is what the LGBT community wants God to do. They want to remain sinful and say, but God still loves me and I love him. And now they want to come into the church and say, hey, let's worship God together, see? 
No, that's warped and it's distorted and it's not of God. And they use this passage, what we're reading today, to prove it. Well, some of them at least do. And then he began to tell me, he says, oh, can we be friends? I said, man, I'm a friend of anybody. I want, to, I, want to, I want to be friends of people to reach them for the Lord, of course. But I said, honestly, I can't do what you're doing. He goes, no, I don't want you to. I know you wouldn't. It's ironic that they know that people of that caliber and, uh, uh, and understand that holy men of God that have been uh, you know, uh, saved from out of darkness and delivered from darkness into the marvelous light, know and understand your character. They know that oh, you wouldn't touch it. They know that you wouldn't even go near it. They know who you are and they understand it. But he said, I just want to know more. I said, yeah, fine. I'm happy to be your friend on that level. And this is the case here. They came to hear. Come on, man. If you're not going to be there for people that are sinful, people that are just absolutely stricken with, the, with, 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 with lust and pride of the world and you're not going to give them time and you're going to be a Pharisee and so on, I'm not going to even go next to them. That's wrong. How do you think you got saved if you are saved? Someone approached you. Someone told you about the Lord and how you need him. Amen? Yes. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 17. Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, say the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. When does he receive them? When does he receive them? When he comes and be separate. And by the way, that's what Jesus did on the cross. He died for sinners that he may sanctify them, make them holy and set them apart the day that they believe. And he says, the day you come out and you repent and turn to the Lord, I will receive you and be a father unto you and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. We must remember that this is a false accusation by the religious Pharisees. You know what they were implying? They were implying that Jesus wasn't holy. They were implying that, oh, look at, he's compromising, you know. What kind of holy man of God is it? He's sitting down with wicked sinners. They were implying the fact that perhaps he was fellowshipping and breaking the, the principles of God's word. They were falsely accusing him. And this is because Jesus was eating with sinners that wanted to hear him and for the most part repented. The whole three parables that Jesus gives in this chapter is first of all to convey that God rejoices over one sinner that repents. To reveal the lack of acceptance toward those, you know, that are repentant. Remember the parable of the prodigal son, he's brother didn't want anything to do with it he don't want anything to do with his brother returning he didn't want to even hear about it wasn't even happy about it so he's trying to reveal the heart of the pharisees and to expose the religious rulers for their lack of repentance that's what he was trying to do by conveying these three parables now the theme of the three stories is that god is thrilled listen god is absolutely thrilled at the fact that when sinners repent he rejoices. Uh, while he gains no satisfaction from self-righteous hypocrites who are too proud to admit their wretched sinfulness, on the other hand, he rejoices regarding those that can see it and come to the Lord. Luke 15 verse 3, and he spoke a parable unto them saying, What man 
of you having a hundred sheep, if you lose one of them, doth not he leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he what? Find it? And when he had found it, he lay it, uh, lay it on, his, on his shoulders. What's that word? Rejoicing. Amen. <laughs> Rejoicing. And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbours, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you, that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, more than ninety-nine and nine just persons which needeth no repentance. I want you to see three words found in verse 7 here. First of all, notice the word repentant. I say unto you likewise, joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth. Now, why do we need repentance? Well, the Bible says in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. In verse 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Bible says in the book of Isaiah uh, 53, verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 20, there is not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. And so God calls all those sheep, if you will, those people that have gone out of the way. They've turned, and we know and understand everybody in this room at some point has done that. Everyone has their own designer lusts. But they've come to realize the truth, and even though they know it, they've turned from it. We've all gone out of the way. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so God calls all men everywhere to what? Repent. To turn back. Matthew chapter 9 verse 13, he says to the Pharisees, but go and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. For I have come to call the right, for I have not come to call the righteous, but who? But who? Sinners to repentance. Because a righteous person doesn't need to repent. And so you read the account of the religious rulers and you know and understand they were too proud and puffed up to ever see their sin. Jesus said, you're blind? They says, no, we can see. And so this is the majority of religious world that we live in today. Even sinful people would not even admit their sinfulness. This is the world that we live in. They justify their sin. And so how can a person that justifies their sin ever come to repentance? How can a person that does not see their sin ever come to sit and hear the truth about their Savior, the truth about eternity in heaven and hell, when they don't see their wretched sin? You know why people don't come to Christ today? You know why people do not uh, want to come to Christ today? Because they don't want to repent. You know why they don't repent? Because they either don't see their sin, or when they do see it, they don't want to repent because they love it. You know, the, prodig uh, the prodigal son paints a solid truth of true repentance in verse 17, and when he came to himself, you know the story about the prodigal son. He left his father. He wanted his inheritance. He spent it, at, you know, you know, at right, uh, his his substance on righteous living, and he ended up being in the famine. He had no more money. 
he ended up being in want, he ended up in the pig pen, working for a farmer, feeding pigs, he was that hungry, that was even eating pig food. Scraps, pigs, whatever pigs ate, he was eating. And at that moment, he realized, by the way, that's what sin ends up doing to us on a spiritual level. Even if you're the richest man in the world, and you have enough to eat, and you've got plenty of money spiritually, spiritually a man is dead lost and needs to come to the end of himself and realize that have a look at uh, verse 17 and when he came to himself he said how many hired servants of my father my fathers have bread enough and to spare and I perish with hunger I will arise and go to my father and will say unto my father, what are those three words? I have sinned. By the way, that's not just say, yeah, I'm a sinner, everyone is a sinner, we all sin. No. I've said that many a times and I'll say it to the day I die, it's more than that. It's more than just head knowledge and it's, it, it, there's a brokenness that takes place. I've sinned against God. I've sinned against my Father. I've sinned against heaven. And before thee, verse 19, and no more worthy to be called thy son. He sees his unworthiness. He's come to the point where he sees that he has simply disrespected his Father and the Father typifies God. Come on, you tell me how many people here on earth have disrespected God. God gives them life. They don't want anything to do with the truth. By the way, my, my stand on truth is not based upon the reactions or reactions of men when they come face to face to it. Someone can say, I don't believe it, it's not true, I know it's true, it'll always be true. God said it's true, I know he'll confirm it in their heart. Uh, it, it's based upon what, what, what we know and understand about the word of God and what we see in the world, uh, the handiwork of God. I know when someone says, I don't believe that. I, don't, I used to do, I don't know, not anymore. And they come up with their philosophy and all these. And at the same time, they curse and swear. That alone tells me, my friend, that they have, n they have nothing to do with the truth. Oh, that's a fable. It's a fairy tale. F you. <laughs> Oh, well, whatever truth that you have, excuse me, I don't want it. God is holy while he conveys truth. And it's the truth mixed with holiness that men that don't like. Because the truth exposes their sin. The philosophers of the world today, they don't see their sin. All they see is their eloquent or their knowledge of how well they try to undermine God and undermine sin in this world and rephrase the names that God gives them. They call good evil and evil good. But it's when a person sees their sinful state and sees the truth of God's word. He says, I'm no more, I'm not, no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. That's humility. And you know, it takes humility to come to the Lord. That's what repentance requires, a humble heart. There's a lot of people today, all you've got to do is just believe, just believe, 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 just believe that Jesus suffered. But they don't, they don't come with a humble, broken heart. Oh, I believe that. Yep, just believe in Christ and what he's done. 
that's sufficient. It's faith and faith alone. Yes. But how are you believing? Proudly or humbly? Broken before God. Can you think in your mind that after the prodigal son sees himself wretched, sinful, unworthy, going to his father with the intentions of going back to the pink pen? Can you see that in this parable? No, you cannot. But the watered down gospel today that has no repentance gives that, in, gives that flavor to the hearers. That they can just believe and continue in their sinful merry way. We see it today. It's rampant, my friends. It's turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. That's why God rejoices over one man that what? Repents. Without repentance, you will never believe on the Lord with all of your heart. Because Jesus suffered and died for our sin. And it was our sin that put him on that cross. But second of all, I want you to see the word joy. In Luke 15, verse 7, I say unto you that likewise, that likewise joy shall be in where? In heaven over one sinner that repents. Now, I want you to notice this quickly, the parable of the lost coin here. Verse 8 to 10, Neither that a woman having ten pieces of, of silver, if she lose one piece, doth not, uh, doth not light a candle and sweep the house and seek diligently till she find it. And when she hath found it, she call her friends and neighbours together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the piece which I have lost, had lost. In verse 10, Likewise I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of who? The angels of God, again, over one sinner that what? Repents. Now, who's rejoicing? A lot of people say, the angels are rejoicing. Well, the Bible says in the presence of the angels. So who's in the presence of the angels? When you look at the prodigal son, his father first rejoiced, didn't he? His father, and then he said, let's do a, in the English vernacular, let's do a barbecue. His other brother didn't rejoice, did he? No, his father and perhaps his friends. But the Father in heaven rejoices when you come to Jesus Christ. What a beautiful thing that is. You know what thrills God's heart? When he sees people sick of their sin and ready to embrace the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's what God, his heart is thrilled. It's thrilled. I mean, can you think about people like Zacchaeus? That, that demonstration of repentance and Jesus receiving him and eating with him, that, that, that Zacchaeus the next day or the next week or the next month had the intentions to continue to stand over and rob people? You'd think like, man, Zacchaeus, come on. Were you legitimate? Were you real? Were you fair? Dinkum, is that, is that what they say? Come on. No, there has to be a heart, although we're, uh, we may fall in the sin and that we're growing and that there's a, uh, at times you know, premeditated to be characterized as an extortioner, uh, you know, is not or should not be named, not one time amongst believers. Oh, Paul makes that very clear. Makes it very clear. There's a sweeping doctrine today, my friends, that people are trying to make Christians feel comfortable in their sin and say, listen, you can sin as much as you want, you're still going to heaven if you believed on Jesus. I know they wouldn't say that, but the subtle teaching is conveying that. 
That's why we need to teach on repentance, so the fear of God can enter in the heart of a man and see what Jesus simply suffered for it. You know, the cross of Christ conveys the love of God, but also the judgment of God. Jesus, when he died on the cross, it was God judging our sin on his behalf. He was taking our judgment. Sin is a serious thing. It put the Savior on the cross. We should take it serious. But when someone comes, and look at verse 32, when the Father receives the Son after he repented, he says, it was meet that we should make merry and be glad, for this thy brother was dead and he's alive, he was lost, and he's what? Wow! That's why we rejoice when people get saved, amen? Yes, it's a rejoice, a wonderful thing. Today, I know the attitude of the heart of man is growing cold and worse, and, and when people make a profession, we kind of stand back and wonder, uh, I wonder if he really got saved. Because we're seeing a lot of people fall away. They come to a certain point, and before you know it, they're gone. And that's happening regularly. And so we stand back and we, and we wonder, you say, how, what, what's our attitude with that? Well, you know what the Bible says, rejoice with those that rejoice and mourn with those that mourn. You know what? I'm going to take his profession. I, I, I'm going to rejoice with that person. And if he ever falls away or apostatizes, I'm going to be sorrowful. I'm going to be mourning. Because I don't know the heart of man. I'm going to treat them like they are. And they, they're brothers and they go through the uh, you know, motions and they get baptized and all the rest of it. But I'm not going to look at the next person in the light of those that have come uh, you know, before and failed. I'm not going to do that. I don't think that's fair. I don't think that God does that. God meets people where they're at. He does. And you know why he does that? Because he holds them accountable if they have a heart that is not sincere. He would declare it in that day. God wants people to go through what we call, you know, personal decisions, free will decisions. And he will hold them accountable to those decisions that they've made. And listen, the greatest decision that you can ever make and God rejoices over is when you repent and turn to Jesus Christ and be saved. That's the greatest decision. Why can't people be happy for others when they get right with God? Why? Why? You know, there are so much things in the world that people get excited about. Sports, music, presents. You know what God gets excited about? When that soul comes to him broken there's something and you know what long enough when you commune with God and his word and you know the heart of God and through the spirit of God he knits your heart with him and you begin to rejoice over the things that make his heart rejoice and you begin to be sad over the things that make him sad and you begin to hate those things that he hates through the Holy Spirit of God molding you into the image of his son. You see that very clearly in the life of Christ. He wept. He rejoiced. 
He got angry. And the context defined all of that. All of it. I believe people cannot get happy and excited for others because they're intimidated by them for coming to Christ. That's why they get intimidated. As a matter of fact, those that are sitting on the fence yet to see uh, how well they're faring will almost be justified when that person comes to repentance or seems to come to repentance and falls away and says, yeah, see, yeah, it's just, yeah, all of it's nonsense. And so they're justified and their lack of repentance. That could be a possibility. Not only they're intimidated by others, but I submit you, to you this morning that they themselves do not want to repent. That's why they don't rejoice. Mate, can't you see Zacchaeus? Look at him. He was a standover man. And now he wants to meet with Jesus? Like, aren't you happy <laughs> that he's come to meet with Jesus? Mate, could you, do you have ears to hear? Didn't you, did you hear him say that he's going to pay back fourfold those that he's, that he's actually robbed? Oh, no, no. You're all worried about your reputation, aren't you, you religious folk? You're all worried about, oh, they might see me with, oh, oh no, we can't go against those, uh, meet those Samaritans. And, and this is why, let me tell you something, this is why Jesus gives the parable about the good Samaritan. Remember that scribe that justified himself? So what must I do to, inher uh, to inherit eternal life? You know, what's written in the law? Love God, love others. Love your neighbor. Well, who's my neighbor willing to justify himself? Well, you know what? Samaritans are your neighbor too, mister. <laughs> yeah. This is what Jesus was conveying. That God now opens the door to repentance to us Gentiles. That's what makes God's heart thrill when both Jew and Gentiles get right with him. I mean, look at our world today, brethren. Look what's going on. I posted up something online saying that there's only true peace in Christ. There's no peace outside of Christ, both for Jew and Gentile. Oh, you insensitive uh, person you are. I'm a Christian, publicly. Don't you care about those people that got raped? Those children that got beheaded? Don't you see? And you look what you're just quoting scripture. Assuming that there's no compassion toward injustice. But I'll say this to you. There's injustice on both sides. And God will balance the books one day. Just because they're under the banner of the nation of Israel doesn't mean that they're exempt from the judgment to come. If you're not in Christ, you're done. Doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Palestinian. Doesn't matter if you're black or white. If you're not in Christ, you're gone. This is about being in Christ. It's what God cares about. That was the whole promise to Abraham. It wasn't about a physical land. It was about Christ, his son, and eternity. 
and the eternal building to come, not these physical things that people are still warring and fighting after. God's heart is thrilled when people come and repent and are broken over their sin and see their wickedness. I wonder how many people are in the house and are lost. I wonder how many people are in this church and are lost. Remember, there were two sons. One went out of the house and one stayed. One was found and one was still lost in the house. You Jews, don't get the picture. You too need to repent. Yes, and this is why he uses uh, the days of Jonah regarding the Ninevites. Repenting at the pre preaching of Jonah. So now you have the Messiah, you have Jesus, the greatest preacher. By the way, he's the prince of preachers. Comes and calls them to a simple message of repentance. Repent, ye Jews. Repent. We are God's chosen people. What do you mean we have to repent? Oh, ho, 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 don't you know we are the descendants of Abraham? And your dispensationalists today just absolutely intensify that like Jews today because there are Jews cannot do wrong. Everyone's a sinner. Everybody, Jew or Gentile, we've all done wrong and we all need Christ. And when we come to Christ, God is happy. Amen. Notice the word one in Luke 15 verse 7. I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one. One. Sinner that repents. God cares and loves that one. God, though there will be a whole heap of people here today, God cares for you. That one. God cares for you, Sam. He does. He knows you by name like he did Zacchaeus. God cares for you, Dylan. God cares for you, Jack. God cares for you, Junior. God cares for you, John. You too, Kevin. All of you. You individual. God cares for you. Everyone here, he cares for you, Isaiah. All of you. You just got to see it, that he cares for you amongst the crowd. And amongst what's going on in the world today, there's that one that he cares he cares for every one of you. He cares for you. All of you. But individuals, he cares for you. He cares for that Samaritan woman that was divorced and remarried five times. He cares for that Zacchaeus that robbed people. He robbed him. And he cares for him. He cares for Nicodemus who was a religious man. He cared for Rahab who was a harlot and a prostitute. He cared for the blind man that was born blind, the thief on the cross. He cares for every one of them. And if they would repent, he would save them and he would rejoice over it. That's the God that we're dealing with. I want you to see an example in the book of Acts, if you don't mind. Acts chapter 8. Have a look. Look at verse 5. Notice Philip the evangelist called by God to do the work of God, to share the wonderful news about Jesus Christ. He gave him the great commission to continue 
where Jesus left off. He ascended into heaven, but before he ascended into heaven, he gave them their marching orders to go into the, all the world and preach the gospel. And by the way, 2,000 years now, the gospel's still being preached. Amen. What a wonderful thing that is. I want you to see Philip here was preaching to a multitude. Verse 4, they were scattered abroad, went preaching everywhere, these people from Jerusalem. And now Philip, in uh, verse 5, then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. Who did he preach unto them? Christ unto them. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For the unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many that were possessed with them and many taking, uh, uh, taken with uh, palsies and they were lame and were what? Healed. Look at this in verse 8. And there was what? There was what kind of joy? Great. Great joy in that city because that's what happens because in every single parable that jesus gives parable of the uh, lost sheep lost coin lost son come and rejoice with us isn't that the common denominator yeah come and rejoice look at verse 9 but there was a certain man called simon oh sorry uh let's let's go to we're not going to look at simon's sorcerer i want you to see verse 26 i want you to see the ethiopian eunuch and the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise, go toward the south under the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto where? Gaza, which is in a what? Wow, imagine that. Imagine being in Gaza. That you're preaching to a whole multitude in Samaria. And God leads Philip to a man in Gaza on a chariot. I want you to see it in verse 29. Oh, sorry, in verse uh, uh, 27. And he arose and went down, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority, under Candace the queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure, and had come to Jerusalem for to worship, was returning and sitting in a chariot, read Isaiah the prophet. Then the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and enjoy thyself to the chariot. And Philip walked. Did it say that? Philip what? Ran. Oh, I don't know about you, but when there's an opportunity to tell someone about Jesus and the Lord sends you there, mate, you just go running. If someone calls you, hey, listen, uh, about what you said the other day, uh, I want to hear more. You run. Amen. There's no greater joy than to hear people responding to what they're reading or hearing in the scripture. Philip ran hither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, How can I accept some man should guide me? And he, and, and, and he desired Philip that it would come up and sit with him. And the place of the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter. Like a lamb, dumb before his shearers, so open not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who shall declare this his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. 
And the, and the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee of whom speaketh thou the prophets? Uh, who speaketh the prophet this? Uh, of himself or some other man? And then verse 35, look at this. And Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him who? Jesus. He was in the multitudes preaching Christ and God leads him to one man on the backside of a desert to talk to him about Jesus. It was almost like this African man slipped through the cracks, making his way, and God says, he is a seeker. He came to Jerusalem to seek and worship. Go, Philip, go! And notice his response. 36, and as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water, and the eunuch said, see, his water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? You know, how many, I don't know how many hours he spent with that eunuch for the eunuch to know that he needed to get baptized. I mean, when we talk about people about Jesus, we say you need to get saved. Baptism doesn't save you, which is true. But over here, he got more than that. He says, you know, it could have looked like this. Now you know who uh, the prophet's talking about. He's the one that's going to be taken out of the earth. He's the one that's been slaughtered and died for you. And, uh, and you need to follow him by believing on him for your salvation. And once you believe, you need to get baptized. Baptism is important, don't you think? I do. Not, not for salvation, but because you are saved. Uh, and, he, and he goes on to say, what stops me from being baptized? In other words, he wants to follow the Lord. And so Philip says this, if thou believest with all thy heart, thou mayest. And he answered and he said, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Baptism by word affirms that you believe. For some people, they get baptized, they don't really believe, they don't understand. They go through the motion of tradition. But here in this case, man, he wants to believe. He says, I believe. He said it very clearly. You've got to believe with all your heart. And so in verse uh, 38, and he commanded the chariot to stand still. And they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And look at this. When they were come out of the water, the spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more. And when he went, and he went on his way, Sorrowful. Does it say that? He went on his way. Why was he rejoicing? Wow. What a wonderful thing to have your sins forgiven. What a wonderful thing to acknowledge the Savior and be a disciple and a true Christian of the Lord. Man, what a point of history in your life. That pivotal point. I'll never forget it 20 years ago what happened that day. I had 24 years of religion, Christian religion, that did nothing for me. But 20 years ago, when I truly believed with all of my heart, I recognized the cross of Christ. A miracle happened in my heart that day. A miracle. And I can't get enough of the Lord. The relationship that, the fact that God receives me. Receives me. Wants to talk with me. Fellowship with me. Commune with me. Me, dust. Come from the ground. Is an absolute wonder. That should never be taken for granted. And give his son for me.
Luke 53 verse 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned everyone to his own way and the Lord had laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Let me ask you some questions in the way of closing. Let me ask you some questions. Was God obligated to give you any opportunity to experience this life, period. No, he wasn't. But he did. Say so why? Because he loves you. Uh, let me, uh, Genesis 2 7 The Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed in his nostrils and became a living soul. That's how God made men. Let me ask you this question. Was God expected to provide food for us to enjoy? Many fruits to eat from? No. Give us taste buds? Many people there walking past trying to hand out some gospel tracts uh, like God hasn't done anything good for them and they're eating a big kebab. <clears throat> Not even thinking about where all this came from. Oh, what's God done for me? And they're eating and enjoying this kebab right in front of us. Can't you thank God for your food at the very least? At the very least. Genesis 2.16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. Question three, was God required to desire a relationship with us? No. But he did, because he loves us. Revelation 4.11 Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory, honour, power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure are they and were created. God created us for him, and it's in him where we find true uh, satisfaction and our identity in Christ. Outside of that, we are lost cause. You reject Christ, that's when you become a lost cause. Was God compelled to send his son into the world to save us. Did he have to do that? No, he chose to do that. Why? Because he loves us. Hereby we perceive, hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us. And by the way, that's no greater love right there. That's the definition and the demonstration of love right there. God is love. For, you know, God commendeth his love toward us in that while we yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's love. Not love is love in my sin. Let me lust and love. No, that's not love. Love is knowing God and to be known of God and be willing to live like God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten. Sadly, many people will remain under the curse of death in their sinful state and be cast in the hell forever because of their own choice to reject God and his love. But even then, when God justly judges people for rejecting his son, he takes no pleasure at the death of the wicked. You said, but Proverbs chapter 1. 
You know, he, he, he laughs when their judgment comes. Well, that's wisdom that mocks them for rejecting God and his son. Wisdom mocks them. It cries out saying, I told you, listen, come, repent, get right. I warned you, you would not come. Wisdom mocks them. Because of their own decisions to reject his son. And I say it to many people on the street. You reject God's offer of salvation through his son. It's like spitting in God's face. It's the ultimate crime. And you can protest against God all you want. God will not look at those people. Because that protest is full of wickedness and pride. And God resists the pride and he gives grace to the humble. And when you humble yourself and you come to Christ and you believe on him and you get saved, it thrills his heart just for that one. You know, that verse there has kept me going. When I see someone get saved, Today, in our generation, and come to Christ and go good, seeing them grow and love their wives, love their husbands, love their parents, their lives changed. So that's revival. And they're not forgotten. So thank you, Lord, for saving someone so two, two years ago. Look where they are now. Look at their son coming, and they get to hear the good news. They're not forgotten. They're not a number. They're a soul that God remembers. People want crowds. And God's looking for that soul. That one that will believe on him. And that virtue and power will be given to that person to be healed from their sin. What joy that is to God, to those that are reaching them, and to their own soul. Joy over one sinner that repents. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.